Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you part two of our conversation on interstitial lung disease, or ILD, with Dr. Ryan Humschild, Director of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare and Winship Cancer Institute, Dr. Daniel Culver, Chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Kristen Hyland, Director of the Rheumatic Lung Disease Program at Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Paul Noble, Vera and Paul Gurren Family Distinguished Chair in Pulmonary Medicine at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Topics of conversation in today's podcast include an in-depth review of treatment landscape of systemic sclerosis, ILD, as well as a discussion on unmet needs and emerging therapies in ILD. In our first clip, Dr. Hyland discusses the treatment landscape of systemic sclerosis ILD and clinical trial data supporting treatment options for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, progressive fibrosing ILD, and systemic sclerosis ILD. Dr. Hyland, I want to transition and get your thoughts because one of the last areas that we haven't really spoken about as in depth is the systemic sclerotic uh, interstitial lung disease. And so I'd love to hear your input on, you know, how do you treat those patients? What are some of the comparing contrasting the different agents or treatment approaches that you've seen? And lastly, what, what's, your, what's your individual practitioner approach to managing a patient in the frontline setting? Thank you. So patients with connective tissue disease and, and scleroderma is really um, the connective tissue disease kind of prototype that... Um, We borrow that data for our other rheumatologic diseases, but the scleroderma community has been very organized at at studying interstitial lung disease in scleroderma. And the first point I'd like to make is that patients with scleroderma are generally a lot younger than a patient with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So they have more potential years to live um, than an IPF patient just based on, you know, our you know, natural life expectancy. And so even small increases or small, small reductions in forced vital capacity decline can really add up over a lifetime. And, and these patients really are looking for, for some sign of hope. So connective tissue diseases, in particular scleroderma, there are multiple pathways at play. There is the fibrotic pathway, there is the immunologic pathway, as well as a vascular pathway. And so very often in scleroderma, scleroderma ILD, you have to target all three of those pathways. Um, But our very first bit of hope was using immunosuppressive therapy. And so scleroderma lung study number one studied oral cyclophosphamide, which, you know, is, is pretty toxic. Um, and in that study, after a year of oral cyclophosphamide, um, there was a very modest um, improvement in forced vital capacity in patients randomized to cyclophosphamide, 2.5 milliliters, that's it, um, compared to a loss in forced vital capacity in, in patients randomized to placebo. Those patients were then followed for an additional year off of therapy, and all treatment benefit was gone by the by the by 24 months. 
And so that prompted scleroderma lung study number two, because we know we cannot leave patients on cyclophosphamide um, indefinitely because of the toxicities of that drug. So scleroderma lung study number two was designed to um, be a superiority trial where patients were randomized to two years of mycophenolate versus one year of oral cyclophosphamide followed by one year of placebo. And that was actually a negative study. What they showed was, was that patients randomized to cyclophosphamide performed similarly to patients randomized to mycophenolate. What was interesting about this study is that patients on cyclophosphamide did not lose their treatment benefit. In fact, both groups um, had improvement in forced vital capacity as well as improvement in their skin scores. So because of that, at least in the United States, mycophenolate then became the drug of choice for scleroderma-associated interstitial lung disease. And so it's, although it's not FDA approved, it's become standard of care. Then the next study um, was the census study. And that study randomized patients to nintendative versus placebo. Patients were allowed to be on background mycophenolate or methotrexate, very, only about 6% of patients were on mycophenolate, I mean, on methotrexate. And about 50% of patients were on background mycophenolate. But importantly, they had been on mycophenolate already for six months. So they were mycophenolate survivors. And then patients were randomized to nintendative versus placebo. And in that study, they showed that patients randomized to nintendative had a decreased decline in forced vital capacity um, compared to patients randomized to placebo. The treatment effect was on par with the IPF studies, but the absolute forced vital capacity difference was less because we know that patients with scleroderma have a shallower slope as a cohort of decline in their first vital capacity. So the absolute value was 41 milliliters. But some of those patients we were able to follow out for 100 weeks and compare them to placebo. And at 100 weeks, that difference was more like 70 milliliters. So, so the curves diverged early and continued to diverge. And when, although that study was not... Um, designed to um, look at subgroup analysis um, because 50% of the patients were on background mycophenolate, we were able to look at patients on combination therapy versus monotherapy versus, um, you know, not on immunosuppressive therapy and not on nintendinib. And patients on combination therapy did better um, from a forced vital capacity um, decline numerically than patients on nintendinib monotherapy, which was better than mycophenolate monotherapy, which was better than neither drug. So um, 
so we have that data. And then scleroderma lung study number three is um, we're just waiting on the data, um, which should be coming out within the next year. And that study is answering the question of whether we should be doing upfront combination therapy. So in that study, patients are being randomized to upfront mycophenolate and perfenidone versus mycophenolate and placebo. So you know, we, we will know um, something about that study within the year. But the latest kit on the block that got FDA approved is tocilizumab. And this is um, an interesting study in that it was a skin study. So um, the modified Ronin skin score was the primary endpoint. The patients enrolled in this study were had very early scleroderma. They had um, significant skin scores, and they had an inflammatory phenotype. And patients were randomized and to tocilizumab versus placebo. They were not on any other immunosuppressive therapy. And so there were a couple things um, that stood out to me from that study. Number one is that at baseline. These patients, you know, had their scleroderma less than two years. And although um, pulmonary function testing, the force vital capacity was above 80% and normal, 65% um, of those patients had evidence of interstitial lung disease on HRCT. So one of the lessons from that study is the importance of getting an HRCT in all patients with scleroderma, even if they have normal pulmonary function. The primary endpoint of that study was negative. It didn't change skin at all. And that's probably because um, we don't have a great skin endpoint in scleroderma. But the key secondary endpoint was, of course, vital capacity. And the study showed that um, there was less patients that had a significant decline in their force vital capacity um, that were randomized to tocilizumab versus placebo. If you look at the 65% of patients that had evidence of interstitial lung disease, 24% of that cohort had a 10% drop in their force vital capacity, whereas only 8% um, that were randomized to tocilizumab, which, which is quite dramatic. And if you look at the difference in forced vital capacity, um, change in forced vital capacity between the two groups, it was over 100 milliliters, which is quite dramatic. And they showed evidence of improvement on quantitative fibrosis scores on HRCT. So based on that data, even though this is a study that had a negative primary endpoint, tocilizumab was FDA approved for the treatment of scleroderma interstitial lung disease. So we now have two FDA approved therapies, nindenidib and um, tocilizumab and standard of care is that most patients um, are in background mycophenolate. Rituximab, um, the data on rituximab for um, scleroderma interstitial lung disease is a bit soft. Um, studies are ongoing, but the scleroderma community generally is using rituximab as, as rescue therapy for scleroderma ILD that does not respond um, to these other therapies. And there is some data from the USTAR database, which is a very large scleroderma database in Europe, 
that suggests a treatment benefit from rituximab. Dr. Highland, you did a great job reviewing all those different trials. Uh, I love the data and how well you can speak to it because I think it's important when we think about the census trial, we think about impulses, ascend, focus trial. I think it's really important we look to that data to make uh, some of these directionally correct decisions for these patients. And I think we need to stay on top of everything. Um, and th that being said, and kind of hearing the clinical data that was pronounced, I keep going back to some of the conversations by Dr. Noble that was a little provocative about moving the deck chairs, you know, and how does this data really relate to the future of decision-making? Next, the panel discusses unmet needs they have found when treating ILD, as well as promising therapeutic developments on the horizon that could improve the treatment landscape. I wanna talk about emerging therapies and, and really what's that unmet need that still exists? We've heard, we've heard you discuss this a little bit earlier, but um, I wanna think about what are some of the unmet needs that we need to identify in the treatment of interstitial lung disease? And, and Dr. Highland, I'm gonna to look to you first to really tell us you know, where do we need to go? What is that unmet need and how do we get there? Thank you. So, there's a couple of unmet needs. Number one is we have great studies in IPF and we have great studies in scleroderma, but there are a whole lot of other interstitial lung diseases that we don't have great studies in and that we probably will never have great studies in because they're less common and they're more heterogeneous and more difficult to study. So we certainly, um, Need, need help with knowing how to, how to treat those patients. We, we have shown that we can lump patients together in studies like in build. And so that's encouraging. And, and we need to have the flexibility to apply the data we've learned from one disease and apply that to the biological um, nature of maybe another interstitial lung disease and be able to be able to translate therapies to those other diseases. I think a big need though is um, precision medicine. We need biomarkers. We need to know which patient is gonna respond best to which therapy. You know, I screen patients for interstitial lung disease with scleroderma and not all of those patients are gonna progress. If you take the patient with rheumatoid arthritis and do a CT scan on them, you'll find evidence of interstitial lung disease in more than 80% 80, 80 of those patients. And you know, Dr. Culver talked about these interstitial lung disease abnormalities, these little, little bits of abnormalities that we're not sure are going to progress into fulminant interstitial lung disease. We need to be able to figure out which patient's gonna progress and which patient is not. We have disease trajectories, um, not only in IPF, but we also in scleroderma, in rheumatoid arthritis, in myositis, where we have our slow progressors and our steep progressors. And, and although we know some risk factors for progression, there are, a lot of patients that we don't know who's going to progress and who's not going to progress without time. And so I would say, you know, better biomarkers and a better precision medicine approach to taking care of our patients is, is a true unmet need. Our colleagues in lung cancer, uh, when I think of non-small cell lung cancer, have so much precision medicine targets, right? Of small molecules and large molecules. And it has, it, it's totally changed the treatment landscape, as you mentioned, Dr. Hyland. And 
you know, I think too, that's what payers are almost looking for as well. As we start to look at these combination therapies and these high cost medications, how can we identify patients that would best respond or might be early progressors? And it's even part of a diversity equity inclusion is creating better treatment pathways, more frontline treatment with patients that might be underserved or might have some genetic um, abnormality that leads them to progressing further and requiring a transplant. I think that's really from a managed care perspective, just like you said, from a diagnosis, I think that plays in the economic outcome because you want to provide the best value, even if it costs a lot of dollars to those patients that need it the most, and how do we identify them? And hopefully in the future, as precision medicine grows, we can steal some of that precision medicine trending and bring it into interstitial lung disease. And I think it would really change the way we're approaching treatment for so many patients and getting them access to therapy probably sooner. And, um, and with that, uh, I do wanna turn it over to Dr. Noble, uh, just because we brought up some of his thoughts early on about where he sees treatment in current state. But I'm curious, you know, what do you think Dr. Noble are the most promising developments on the horizon with all the patients that we've spoken about together, whether it's screening, diagnosis, like precision medicine, therapy, or just overall treatment? Um, you know, I hate, I don't want to sort of, you know, throw water on what's been an exciting conversation, but I, um, I have, you know, been a little bit discouraged over the last couple of years. And now granted, I'm not as involved as I was, uh, with profenadone and intentive in the, the early stages, but most of the conversations I've had in the clinical trials, we're involved with are either trying to come up with a better, more better tolerated profenadone and inhaled profenadone or other drugs that will slow the loss of lung function, but not have the tolerability issues. There isn't anything that I'm aware of right now that's really looking at um, a promising approach to making people better. And the reason I think that's the case for IPF is, um, and I will use the CF analogy because the drugs for CF target the underlying disease mechanism. And in, and one of the things we know about IPF is that the alveolar type two cells, you know, are just not normal. They don't regenerate properly. And so, you know, the, the antifibrotics really, the horse is out of the barn. It makes, they make it harder for fibroblasts to make collagen, which is important, but it doesn't treat the underlying so until we get some therapeutic approaches that look at rejuvenating these alveolar type two cells, I don't think, um, you know, that we're going to see FVCs go up. So right now it, it would be, I don't want to diminish the importance of having better tolerated drugs because at least I'd be curious with Kristen and Dan, but in my practice, you know, which is exclusively fibrotic lung diseases, my IPF patients, I would say maybe two thirds are on after a year, I mean, they really struggle with tolerating the drugs. Um, and so if we did have drugs that people would stay on for five years, I do think it would translate into, you know, improved outcomes. Um, but um, there's, you know, the one compliant has a drug that targets one of the integrins, which is how TGF beta gets activated. Now, two others failed, Biogen failed, and uh, there was another small molecule company for, for toxicity. So we'll see. They're in phase two. I'm sure you guys are participating as well. Um, and I am on that scientific advisory board. So, um, you know, with some optimism, but, um, but I'd like to see more bolder approaches to, to how we, if we don't see somebody get an FEC tick up in six months, move on to the next drug. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm getting a little bit more senior 
And before I hang up my cleats, I really want to see people breathe better, walk further and, and live longer. Um, and I, I just don't want to be part of this, you know, where I trained, uh, you know, the, the adage was we just need to diagnose it early and prevent progression because we're never going to get people better. And I don't want to believe that. <laughs> well, it, it's a bold comment, but I like it because you're challenging us to get better. And, uh, you know, you like bold. I know Dr. Culver likes boring uh, visits, that is. And, uh, you know, as he talks about seeing, you know, better performance where he gets to talk about life with his patients, I think that's, that is exciting. And so, Dr. Culver, from your perspective, what do you think is promising uh, on the horizon here for the treatment of interstitial lung disease? Thank you. I think that I, I agree with everything that's been said. There are really three buckets in my mind. One of them is doing what we're doing, but doing it better. That's less toxic versions of the medicines that we have targeting similar mechanisms, perhaps. The second thing I think is more analogous to how we manage heart failure, which is probably another disease that we really don't get to the underlying pathophysiologic issue. When you look at the mechanisms of uh, IPF, uh, it's complex, it's multifactorial. There's issues with alveolar epithelial cell uh, senescence. Uh, there's issues with myofibroblast activation and proliferation. And, and there's issues with the lung mechanics as well. And so it's a feed forward mechanism that's got multiple exit and entry ramps uh, and that feeds back on itself. And so it may be that interdicting one particular spot in this is not enough and that we have to really take this as a multifaceted approach and tamp it down in several different areas uh, to really have effect. And I think cancer is a good analogy. Um, and I suppose heart failure is another analogy. And, and, and Paul is right. That doesn't fix the underlying problem. And I think we should aspire to the third bucket, which is really let's get those cells uh, all back to how they should be let's get that basement membrane restored and do lung regeneration. And that should be the ultimate goal. But until we get to there, I think we need to think about being very open to multimodal therapy and not thinking that in a complex pathophysiologic network that, that targeting one particular molecule or one particular mechanism is going to be enough for our patients. I don't think it is. And I'll, I'll make one more comment of something that was said earlier, which is related to the payers and, and, and how we access these, these approaches. And, and I'll point out that there are other places that do it differently than the US. There are some data, in fact, suggesting some outcome differences between Canada and the US. And, and one of the things that I think is important that happens in some of these other places is that patients with these sorts of diseases are channeled into expert centers, into reference centers, into centers of excellence. And I do think that it would be um, attractive and appropriate uh, to, to have some places where there's a little easier access to therapies and diagnostics. Uh, and that's based on experience. There's evidence for that. And I, I think uh, that would get patient care better. It would drive down costs and, and it would really allow the patients to have the best possible outcomes. And I think that's what we've got to work towards. And payers also have to work towards having good tolerability and adherence. Because if something performs great in a clinical trial, but it doesn't translate to real-world evidence, we're kind of back at, at ground zero. That's all we have for today. If you missed it, please tune in to the first podcast in this series, where we discussed goals of treatment and reviewed treatment paradigms and standard of care therapies in ILD. 
From all of us at AJMC, thank you for listening to this Managed Care Cast. For more updates in managed care, be sure to visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening.